All right, morning, everyone. I'd like to open your Bibles to Luke 15. Good to see all of you. We've reached a wonderful chapter in Luke's Gospel, a favorite for many people as we continue our verse-by-verse study through Luke on Sunday mornings. Go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Just two verses for this morning. Luke 15, we'll look at verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. Verse 2, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And you may be seated. Father, we thank you for your steadfast love. And it was just shared with us from that psalm, and I don't know that it's shown any better in the Gospels um, than through this example with the tax collectors and sinners that Jesus reaches out to, uh, receives, and then we see through the parables, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the, the lost sons of his pursuit of them. And we thank you that you pursued us and that you saved us, that you've given us faith in Christ, and it's a privilege. Um, I feel like that word comes up far short from what actually the blessing it is to be saved and to be able to worship you with other believers like this on this Lord's Day. We thank you for for sonship. We thank you so much for um, being joint heirs with Christ, and I pray we would come with anticipation of what you would say to us through your word and also a thankfulness for those realities that would give us a desire to be focused on you and how you would speak to us. I pray, Lord, that as we look forward to the exchange and being more evangelistic and growing in that area as a church, that you would use these sermons that we've providentially reached to prepare us to share, our, share the gospel with others better. And so I thank you for this time and just bringing us to this chapter for such, uh, for such a season in our church life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. So we have the exchange approaching, and hopefully you received that information. Pastor Nathan had just asked about it when he was doing announcements. And we have reached, uh, and that's just a program that's going to help us or train us to be able to share the gospel better. And I'm really thankful for this opportunity as a church to grow in this area, one that I think has been a weakness for us. Now, fittingly, or providentially, we have reached a chapter that contains the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and, and the lost sons. Even though you've heard it called the parable of the prodigal son, you'll understand when we look at it, which I believe Jameson had shared when he mentioned it in Sunday school, why it's more fittingly called the parable of the lost sons. And so <clears throat> these, this chapter, or those parables, show the Lord's heart for the lost probably better than any other place in Scripture. And so we're going to be receiving training about reaching out to the lost, And over these weeks, we're going to be looking at parables that reveal the Lord's heart for the lost. The verses at the beginning mention Jesus' relationship with people who were considered the worst in society. To the Jewish mind, this phrase, I believe it's eight times in the Gospels, you read tax collectors and sinners. And it's almost, you you read it and can imagine the scorn or ridicule with which that phrase is said as these people were described. I'm going to briefly explain tax collectors because we're going to see them throughout the sermon. And perhaps you've wondered why it'll say tax collectors and sinners versus murderers and sinners or adulterers and sinners or fill in the blank with whatever you happen to think is the worst sinner and sinners. It's almost like, you know, tax collectors reach a new level of sinfulness in in some people's minds. And so you say, why is that? Why were tax collectors presented so terribly? And the answer is because in the Jewish mind, there was really nothing worse than a tax collector. Here's why. 
The Romans severely, I mean, nobody wants to pay taxes. Everyone just probably feels like they're being taxed too much. And in the Jewish, in the Jesus day, it was a particularly bad situation with the Romans overtaxing the Jews. The important thing to know about tax collectors were they were, they were Jews who were collecting taxes for Rome from their fellow Jews. And so they were viewed as being what to the Jewish people? Traitors, and traitors for their own benefit. Most tax collectors were very wealthy because the other thing to know about tax collectors was there was a level of tax that was to be collected for Rome, but anything that the tax collectors collected above that, they were able to keep for themselves, which produced a very lavish lifestyle for many of them. And there was no way to resist tax collectors because whose support did they have behind them? Rome's support. And so you were in this very difficult, lose-lose situation where you're forced to give um, more than you knew was right to give, but there was really nothing you could do about it. And you were giving it to, of all people, a fellow Jew who's serving Rome for their own benefit. Who's probably the most famous tax collector in Scripture? I'll give you a hint. He became uh, one of Jesus' disciples. Matthew. He was previously called Levi. Uh, Jesus calls him, and he, his name is changed to Matthew, and his, it's the same gospel that is named after him in your Bibles, the first gospel. And so tax collectors, they were notoriously dishonest. If you remember when they came to be baptized by John, listen to what John said to the tax collectors. They said, teacher, what shall we do? And he said, collect no more than you are authorized to do. So he didn't even condemn their profession, he just condemned their dishonesty or their theft from Jews. We'll see how Jesus was able to deal with tax collectors and sinners while remaining holy. And this has application for us because there should be a question in all of our minds associated with reaching out to unholy people when we are called to be holy people or reaching out to non-Christians who are going to have lifestyles and make decisions and use language that we as Christians should not make or use. And so really the question is this, how can we as holy people be reaching out to unholy people without their unholiness rubbing off on us? We're going to be able to talk about that this morning and even look at Jesus' example and how he dealt with tax collectors and sinners. I, I'll tell you, I think there is an amount of confusion associated with Jesus' relationship with tax collectors and sinners. I think many people want to engage in compromising or un- ungodly or unholy activities with, uh, under the guise of evangelism and claim that it's what Jesus did, and so they should be able to do it too. So that's what we're going to be talking about. Now, go ahead and turn, mark this spot in Luke, and turn to the left a few books to Haggai 2. We're going to look at a few verses. I believe we've looked at them before, so I'm going to go through them pretty quickly. Haggai 2, third to last book of the Old Testament. So turn to the end of the Old Testament and look for the third to last book. It's very small, so probably just, you know, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Kind of rolls off your tongue. Those are the post-exilic prophets, minor prophets. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, the prophets that prophesied after the exile. And turn to Haggai chapter 2, third to last book of the Old Testament. Here's the context. The Jews have returned to the promised land following their exile in Babylon, and they're believing two lies associated with holiness. 
So in our discussion of holiness and what would allow someone to be holy or become unholy, we're going to consider these two lies that the, that the Jews believed so we can learn from them. And the two lies were this. They believed that if they did holy things, or generally religious things, like offering sacrifices or building the temple, that that was going to make them holy. And the other lie, they believed that being in the holy land or back in the promised land was going to make them holy. The problem is they thought these things would make them holy without them living... I thought, here, let's try that again. They thought that would make them holy without them living holy lives, right? And so God sends the prophet Haggai to them to tell them the truth about holiness, to correct their understanding. Look at verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts. So Haggai is told, ask the priests about the law. So Haggai is going to ask the priests two questions about the law. And considering that the priests are the experts in the law, or even the custodians of the law, they were the ones that kept the law. Everyone did not have uh, copies of the law or Bibles in those days. These would be the individuals who would know better than anyone else answers to questions about the law. So here's the first question. Verse 12. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold, touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered, no, it does not. So Haggai asked, what happens when something holy touches something unholy? When something holy touches something unholy, does whatever is unholy suddenly become holy? And the priest rightly said what? No, that's not the way it works. This brings us to lesson one. Holiness can't be transferred. Holiness can't be transferred. You can think about it like this. When healthy people go into a hospital, they can't walk around and touch sick people and make those sick people healthy, right? Or if you have an amount of spoiled food, you can't take your non-spoiled food and use the non-spoiled food to touch the spoiled food and make the spoiled food non-spoiled, right? That's kind of the principle here. You're not going to be able to pass along holiness. Look at the second question. Holiness isn't contagious or doesn't rub off on others. Verse 13 Haggai said, if someone who is unclean, and that word is synonymous with unholy, so if someone is unclean or unholy by contact with a dead body, touches any of those things that he mentioned in the previous verse, does it, or whatever is holy, become unclean? And then the priest answered, and they said, it does become unclean. So now Haggai said, what happens when something holy comes in contact with something unholy, does what is holy become unholy? And the priest rightly answered what? Yes, that is what happened. And so while holiness can't be transferred or it doesn't rub off on others, unholiness is contagious. Unholiness can be transferred. It can rub off on others. Now, can you see the application that this would have for our evangelism? So we're going to talk about how we as holy people would share the gospel or interact with unholy people without their unholiness rubbing off on us and even without us having the ability to pass our holiness along to them. And this brings us to lesson two. Unholiness can be transferred. Unholiness can be transferred. And this is why Paul wrote 
in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now, we typically apply that to marriage, and of course, it has considerable application for marriage. Uh, an unbeliever, a believer should not marry an unbeliever, but it has application for life in general. Now, if holiness could be transferred or passed along, then we wouldn't read this. We would actually read Paul telling us the opposite, that light should be with darkness so that it can turn the darkness into light or expel the darkness. Maybe you've heard people say, we're going to take this unholy thing from the world, and I've seen this uh, perhaps most on social media to defend behaviors or actions. People will claim to be able to take something unholy or even immoral or ungodly from the world, and maybe it's a movie or maybe it's music, or maybe it's a book, and then claim to sanctify it or redeem it. And it's viewed as kind of being this victory that if you can take this unholy thing from the world and then you can redeem it for Christ, then you've done this wonderful thing. But these verses teach that that's not possible. If it is unholy in the world, then where else is it unholy? In, in, in your marriage? In your life? In your family? Uh, in your home? And if we introduce those unholy things from the world into our lives, our families, our homes, our marriages, or our churches, then what happens is we're introducing unholiness into our lives, our marriages, our families, or churches. We're not making those things suddenly holy or redeeming them. Only Christ has the power to redeem. That's not within our ability. Jerry Bridges said, holiness begins in our minds and it works its way out in our actions. That being true, what we allow to enter our minds is critically important. The television programs we watch, the movies we attend, the books and magazines we read, the music we listen to, the conversations we have all affect our minds. We need to evaluate the effects of these using Philippians 4.8 as a standard. Are the thoughts stimulated by these true, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy? Now, that this discussion has primarily been about objects or things. That's what Jerry Bridges is talking about, and that's what I've been asking us to consider, movies, music, books, TV shows. But what if what we're talking about isn't an unholy thing? What if instead is an unholy person? We can be severe with unholy things, uh, cut them out of our lives, but we understand God doesn't want us cutting out every unholy or unbelieving person from our life, or we would never be able to share the gospel. So then the question becomes, if we can't have that same sort of ruthlessness or severity with ungodly people or unholy people or unbelieving people that we can't have with unholy things, how are we going to interact with them without them leading us to be unholy? Because the truth is there is a danger of people's unholiness rubbing off on us. And here's a few verses to support that. Proverbs twenty two twenty four. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. So the so interestingly, the angry person doesn't learn to be patient by being with a patient person, but it does warn the believer that by being with the angry person that they can learn to be angry or angrier, and it can even ensnare them or serve as a trap to them. 
Proverbs 13, 20. Whoever walks with the wise can become wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So the companion of fools doesn't end up saving fools through that relationship. It just doesn't read the way we would expect. We would be told to attempt to save fools or spend time with them so that they can become wise. But instead, the believer is told that he is going to suffer because of the fool's foolishness, I believe, rubbing off on him. It, I mean, that's what it says. It says the companion of fools will suffer harm. Well, what would be the harm that we would suffer? We would learn from the fool, or the foolishness would rub off on us. Proverbs fourteen seven: leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not meet words of knowledge. So again, people are told to leave the presence of fools versus spend time with them to make them wise. One reason would be the unfruitfulness of being with fools. The characteristic of fools is they don't listen. They're unteachable, so it's an unprofitable endeavor to spend time with them when you can't make any positive impact on their life. But the other reason is so their foolishness doesn't rub off on us. And then a New Testament parable to this, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals or good habits. Again, we're familiar with this verse, but if we weren't, we would probably recognize that it doesn't read the way we would expect. We would expect Paul to tell us to hang out with people with bad morals so that they can learn from us or so that we can teach them to live or behave or act differently. But instead, he says to avoid them because of the danger that they pose to our, our morals or our morality. So again, back to the question as we approach Luke 15 and focus on evangelism. How can we be evangelistic, reach out to unholy people without being negatively affected by them? And this brings us to lesson three. Lesson three, keep unholiness out of your life by part one, evangelizing versus compromising. Keep unholiness out of your life by evangelizing versus compromising. Listen to these two verses that apply very well to this discussion. Galatians 5.13, Paul says, you are called to freedom, brothers. And we love that. We love, to, we love our liberty or our freedom in Christ, right? But there's a danger, potential downside, which Paul warns about here. He says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 1 Peter 2, 16, live as people who are free. So again, celebrate your freedom, enjoy it, live freely, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Now, what are one of the most common times that people would use their freedom as an opportunity for the flesh or use their freedom as a cover-up for evil can be in evangelism. Because it seems very defensible to be closer with certain people that we wouldn't be with otherwise, and it seems defensible to go to certain places or engage in certain activities that we wouldn't otherwise, because then we can claim that we're doing what when we go to these places or we engage in these activities. We're trying to see people be saved. We're wanting to be able to share the gospel with them. We wouldn't typically go to this bar or this club, but... So it sounds like this. Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners, and so I'm just going to this bar 
so that I can share the gospel there. Or I'm close friends with these ungodly people because I want to see them become Christians, and the only way that I'm going to be close enough to see that happen is if I'm doing some of the same things that they're doing, or listening to their jokes, or laughing at them at those jokes, or maybe sharing some of those same jokes myself. I wouldn't talk this way with Christians, but I need to be a little bit cruder in my language. There needs to be some coarse jesting. I know the Bible forbids it, but I'm going to do it here so that these people can come to Christ. I go to this club because I want to witness to the people who are going there with me. Now, is that really true, or are these simply opportunities to feed the flesh, or are they cover up, cover, ways to cover up evil? James 1.27, religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and then it says, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now, I know that that verse is primarily about caring for or loving the less fortunate. But there's also application there that when our relationship with, there's kind of this, that theme some years ago that was popularized or is still somewhat popular today. You know, I don't like religion. I like, I like a relationship. I mean, I, I love a relationship with Christ too, but a relationship with Christ produces a religion in our lives, produces religious activity. And when that religious activity is played out, then we are told to prevent the world from staining us in the process. And so the relationship with Christ is played out in different activities, such as sharing the gospel, and while doing that, we're told to avoid being stained by the world. Consider that in relationships, if, if you for a moment were to reflect on those that you're closest with, it's probably because there are some commonalities or similarities that you share. It could be sports, or it could be books, or it could be movies, or automobiles, or it could be school. Now, if you're a Christian, you're with another Christian. The wonderful thing, and Katie and I reflected on this one time, after I became a, before I was a Christian, this is what I needed to have in common with people. I couldn't have much a relationship with people unless we had sports, books, movies, something in common that I liked. Well, after I became a Christian, there was, and we started having home fellowship, there were a couple times that Katie and I reflected on the fact that many of the people that were filling our home had nothing in common with us except for one thing, and what's that? We, we actually probably never, apart from Christ, would have had a relationship with many of these people. Not to say there was anything wrong with them. They were great people, but we simply had nothing in common with them. We were not in the same season of life. We did not like many of the same things. But because of Christ, we're able to have considerable intimacy with these people. And, that, and that's the beauty of fellowship, that even if you don't have much else in common with people, if it's another Christian, you have Christ in common, which allows for deep and sincere uh, relationships. But I'm telling you all that because I want you to think about this. Christians have in common a love for Christ, the Holy Spirit, the new man, what do believers and unbelievers have in common? And they do have something in common. The flesh. The old man. Believers and unbelievers do have something in common. We are going to be cloaked in it uh, until we die. It is not until we receive our glorified bodies that we will be rid of this. I mean, you listen to the way Paul describes, just, you almost picture him just wanting to rip it off his body, this wretched man that he is because he's, he's cloaked in this flesh. And so, regardless of how mature we ever become, we are always going to have the flesh or the old man 
which is the one thing that we have in common with every unbeliever. And so because of that, how are believers and unbelievers going to connect along the very basest level, the flesh? Believers and unbelievers cannot, cannot, cannot connect according to the Spirit or the new man because they don't have that in common. We can only connect with unbelievers along the basest level, the flesh, or typically what I mean by that is sin. That's what we're going to have in common with unbelievers, sinful behavior, sinful activities. Jay Bud, I'm going to butcher this guy's name, Budzewski, that's my best guess, but he said this, God wants you to rub off on your non-Christian friends, but Satan wants them to rub off on you. So remember, you can have relationships outside the faith, but for your deepest comrades, you should look to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Hang out with the holy, get in with the godly, spend time with the saved, know who your real family is, and it's the one where the Father is God. Thomas Brooks said, let your closest companions be those who have made Christ their closest companion. And I would say this, if I don't see this as a, a local problem. In fact, it seems to me that most of you love being with other believers. But if you happen, if there is anyone in here that this applies to, or you happen to meet someone that this applies to, you should be concerned or you should warn that person. And here's the warning. If you enjoy being with unbelievers more than believers, there's something wrong if you claim to be a believer, but the closest people in your life are unbelievers. Or there's something wrong if you claim to be a believer, but you don't seem very passionate about Christian fellowship, but you're super passionate about your non-Christian fellowship or all of the unbelieving friends you get to hang out with. Or, you know, you might go, you go to church Sunday morning, but all you're thinking about is when you get to go be that, at that party or that club or go be with all your, your unbelieving friends. The next part of lesson three, keep holiness out of your life by part two pointing tax collectors and sinners to the physician. Pointing tax collectors and sinners to the physician and then turn to Luke 5. Turn to Luke 5. To see Jesus' approach. Look at verse 27. We'll go through these verses pretty quickly. This is when Levi was called. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Verse 28, Matthew or Luke 5, 28. And leaving everything, Levi or Matthew rose and followed Jesus. And Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at Jesus' disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Very similar to Luke 15. In fact, this criticism right here is what sets up the parables. We're kind of laying a foundation for the parables that Jesus is going to preach in Luke 15. And we're seeing part of that foundation here where Jesus is criticized throughout his earthly ministry for hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Think about when a prostitute washed Jesus' feet with her hair in tears, and then she kissed his feet and anointed them with oil. Luke 7, 39, the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, and he spoke to himself. He didn't even say this aloud. He said, this man, if he were a prophet, which Jesus showed he was a prophet by knowing what this man was thinking versus saying, right? He said, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. 
And so that's the kind of scorn that was being leveled against him for his relationship with tax collectors and sinners. And, and I think one application for us to help balance this out, because what I'm not, definitely not trying to do, I I'll hope I can be clear about this right now, is cause us to have nothing to do with the tax collectors and sinners in our lives, which if you were like me, you were definitely one of those people before someone shared the gospel with you. And so as thankful as I am that there were individuals in my life who didn't look at me the way that the religious leaders were looking at the people Jesus was evangelizing, I would not have become a Christian otherwise. So the point of the sermon is not to say not to have relationships with the unbelievers that we know. This sermon is about understanding actually how we can have a relationship with them appropriately or biblically. And I think Jesus' example is a good one for us. So if we ever act like we're too good to be around certain people, I'm not saying that we would have close intimate relationships with them, but when we ever act like we can have no relationship with them because we're too good for them or they're too bad for us, then we basically look like the religious leaders. And it's pretty much always bad to look like the religious leaders, isn't it? I can't really think of a good time to look like the religious leaders. So look how Jesus responds in verse 31. He answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And this is great. It's just one word here, but it is just pregnant with application for us. Jesus is a physician, but he's a physician for sinners. He knew that people were spiritually sick and in need of healing. Earthly physicians deal with physical sickness. Jesus deals with spiritual sickness. Earthly physicians work on the body. Jesus works on the soul. A few verses earlier in the same chapter, so you don't have to flip anywhere, the paralytic is lowered through the roof. Now, if you looked at the paralytic, did he look, did he look worse physically or spiritually? He looked worse physically. I mean, he couldn't look much worse physically than being unable to move. He had to be carried. We're not talking paralyzed like his legs don't move. We're talking like quadriplegic where nothing moves. You couldn't look worse physically, but Jesus knew that he was worse spiritually than physically. And so I think it's verse 20 that it says, Luke 5, 20, man, your sins are forgiven you is what Jesus... So Jesus actually dealt... Because when that paralytic was lowered through the roof, what was he and the men who had carried him and lowered him through the roof, went through all that trouble of taking the roof apart, carrying him up there, lowering him through... What was the paralytic and the men who carried him wanting to hear from Jesus? Yes, man, your, par- your uh, parallel paralysis is healed. Basically, to hear anything else would have been disappointing. But Jesus dealt with a man's greatest need, which was spiritual. And so he said, your sins are forgiven you. And then he ended up healing him physically after. But the point is, he is primarily a spiritual physician, come to heal spiritual sickness. The word physician helps us understand Jesus's relationship with tax collectors and sinners and serves as a good example for us in our outreach and evangelism. Think about what physicians do. It's pretty interesting. I mean, you can't help but really appreciate that Jesus would be called a physician when you think about physicians' relationships with patients. Physicians make every effort to be around patients while ensuring that they don't what? 
get sick or get contaminated or infected by them. And they take all these steps. They sanitize their hands. You know, they can put on gloves. They can put on masks. And second, what are physicians doing? They're diagnosing. They're carrying this clipboard. They're investigating. They're trying to figure out what's wrong. They're prescribing a cure. They're telling people what to do or what not to do. They're, they want to see healing take place. They have this very specific purpose. It's, it's intentional. It's deliberate. Nobody ever says, like when you say, I'm going to go see my physician, you say that because you're sick. Nobody ever says, hey, I'm going to go see my physician because I want to hang out with him. Nobody ever says, hey, I'm going to go see my physician so we can catch this football game. It's just not a friendly relationship like that. It's a professional relationship. There's something very deliberate or intentional behind it. People say, I'm sick. I need to go see my physician. I need help. I'm going to the doctor. And when you're at the hospital and the doctor walks in, just what do you, what do you want and not want from the doctor? There was actually one time I went to the doctor and the gentleman sat down and I, I kind of appreciated that it seemed like he wanted to get to know me, but it just was going on and on. And I just, I didn't really want to talk anymore about my, myself. I wanted to talk about my sickness and the reason that I was there. And I didn't really care to tell him much more about my family or my life. And so it was actually pretty bizarre. So we don't go to the doctor and want to engage in a bunch of chit chat, do we? You don't want to sit there for 45 minutes telling the person about your family. Now, you can do that with a friend as you get to know someone. But when you go to the doctor, you want them to help you. You're not trying to build a friendship here. You don't meet your doctor and think, now, what can we talk about so that later we want to go do this activity together? You don't ask them to come over for dinner. Jesus' ministry is similar, so notice this balance. He spends this time with tax collectors and sinners. He socializes with them. But here's the truth. He's not buddies with them. He's not this very close friend to them. He does become close friends after they are saved, after they repent, and it's a good example for us to follow. We should have unbelievers in our lives, but the relationship must be deliberate. It must be intentional. It must be like Jesus modeled. We're looking for opportunities to share the gospel. We're just, as G, just as an earthly physician wants to see healing take place, we want to see spiritual healing take place. Instead of being close friends, we're going to point them to the great physician because only he can heal them. Can any of us spiritually heal anyone? No. We can share the gospel. We can point them to Christ because that's how spiritual healing takes place. Spurgeon said, Lord, grant that whenever I am found in the company of sinners, it may be with the design of healing them, and may I never become infected with their disease. Now, continuing this physician analogy, Jesus, fittingly, has a prescription. There's something that he prescribes for sinners. Does anyone know what it is? You can look in verse 32. What does he prescribe? Repentance. That's what he prescribes. Verse 32, he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That is the prescription for the spiritually sick. And, and if you write in your Bible, you can circle the word righteous and you can draw a little line, and you can put self-righteous. Because when Jesus said, I haven't come to call the righteous, he didn't literally mean there are righteous people out there. Romans 3.10 says, nobody is righteous, no, not one. 
So don't read this and think, wow, so there were righteous people that didn't need Jesus. No, he's talking about people who were convinced they're righteous because they were proud, or he's people who were self-righteous. And notice the phrase, call sinners to repentance. Jesus didn't come to call the self-righteous to repentance because he's a physician and they don't think that they're what? They don't think they're sick. So he comes to call sinners because they know they're sick. 1 Timothy 1.15, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is his purpose. The religious leaders criticized him, and this is kind of interesting, which shows that the religious leaders really had no understanding of what Jesus was and wasn't doing. Because if Jesus did not pursue or associate with sinners, it actually wouldn't have made sense. And here's why. If you're a pediatrician, then you're going to be around what at times? If you're a veterinarian, you're going to be around what at times? And if you're a physician, you're going to be around sick people at times. And Jesus is a spiritual physician, so he is going to be around spiritually sick people. If you're a savior, you're going to be around sinners. That only makes sense. It would have made no sense for Jesus to come and behave like the religious leaders were claiming he should have behaved, because then he wouldn't have been a savior. He wouldn't have been a spiritual physician. One reason Jesus might have chosen Matthew, and I could be wrong about this, but it happened so early in his earthly ministry, so I I confess this is just my suspicion, but when Jesus chose Matthew, a notorious tax collector, or a head of tax collectors, to be one of his disciples, do you think word spread that Jesus did that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he received considerable criticism, and then Matthew invites over all of his other tax collectors for this dinner with Christ. And so the word spread that Jesus invites this tax collector or head of tax collectors and then has dinner with a bunch of tax collectors. And he does this particularly early in his ministry, which would cause people to think what? He won't turn me away. Jesus very well could have chosen Levi as early as he did because of what it communicated. Anyone looking on who might have thought that Jesus would turn them away would be absolutely convinced that he wouldn't do that as soon as they saw Jesus receive Matthew and apparently some number of other tax collectors who were at that feast as well. The religious leaders, on the other hand, they could not have been more different than Jesus. They tried to stay as far away from sinners as possible. And what's very ironic or even sad about this is if the religious leaders were as spiritually healthy as they thought they were, who should they have been spending time with? Sinners, to try to help them. If they were as spiritually healthy as they thought, they should have been with the spiritually sick. Imagine doctors who never go around sick people because they think they're too healthy, right? That's the religious leaders. The fact is, if you're spiritually healthy, you should try to help the spiritually sick. And it's not just Jesus that, that, that applies to. That's, that's the charge for us. Listen to this. Galatians 6.1, brothers, If anyone is caught in any transgression, which is to say someone is spiritually sick, you who are spiritual, which means you who are spiritually healthy, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep, now listen to this part as well, keeping watch on yourself lest you too be tempted, which is basically code for don't let their unholiness rub off on you, right? Kind of one of the things we've been talking about. So you're spiritually healthy, help the spiritually sick, but just ensure you don't get infected or catch any of their spiritual sickness while you're with them now turn to luke 14 
So we're getting closer to Luke 15. Turn to Luke 14. I'll show you something truly incredible. Look at the end of this chapter, which we spent quite a few weeks in. I believe they're some of the strongest in all of Scripture regarding discipleship or regarding following Christ. I'll just briefly remind you, let's just quickly go over these verses. Verse 26, Jesus says, If anyone wants to follow him, they must hate their father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even their own life, or they can't be his disciple. Verse 27 says, You can't be his disciple unless you'll carry your cross. Verses 28 to 32, he tells everyone to count the cost of discipleship before becoming a disciple using the illustration of building a tower and going to battle. Verse 33 says, if people aren't willing to give up their possessions, they can't be his disciple. And then verses 34 and 35, he says, salt that's lost its taste or that has become worthless, which illustrates worthless disciples, is good for nothing but being cast out. And the idea is disciples that are worthless or do nothing are worth, are just meant to be cast out in a sense. So I don't think it's too much to say these are some of the more challenging or most challenging verses Jesus preached. And why did he preach these verses? Why did Jesus preach this super challenging exhortation on discipleship at this moment? The answer is in verse 25. Great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them. So Jesus looks at these bloated, inflated crowds that he knows are filled with people that are not really disciples, even though they're following him at this moment, and he wants to thin the ranks, right? He wants to trim the fat. He wants to see only the true disciples hanging around, and he wants all the people on the fence to be gone, basically. He knows what's coming, and he knows they're going to be taken off anyway, so it's like he decides to just get this over with. If you've been with us on Sunday nights, one of the things I kept thinking about, Pastor Nathan's teaching on the life of Gideon, and sometimes when Jesus would preach to large crowds, it's almost like Gideon prefigured Jesus' ministry, where Gideon starts with 32,000 and just brings it down to 300, but it's like Jesus took like tens of thousands and brought it down to about 12. And so maybe Gideon is prefiguring that. So Jesus lays down this incredibly challenging charge to all of these people following him, And I want to ask you this, after delivering this incredibly hard-hitting teaching about discipleship, who's going to leave and who's going to follow him? Look at Luke 15, verse 1, for the answer. Now, after that, the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. And this brings us to lesson four. Tax collectors and sinners who know they're sick draw near to Jesus. Tax collectors and sinners who know they're sick draw near to Jesus. I mean, honestly, isn't this incredible to read? Because unfortunately, which is why I want to, as I'm going verse by verse through Luke, or really any book, show continuity there's chapter breaks and verse breaks that unfortunately cause breaks for you and me in our reading. And so we lose context, as thankful as I am for the chapters and verses so that I don't have to say to you, hey, take your scroll with Luke's gospel on it and turn like maybe like halfway through it to that part where it's talking about this, and then we all wait for 45 minutes for all of us to say, 
find the same part on our scroll, you know, as we're rolling the, what are those things called, the, the rods in the end of the scroll, you know. So I'm thankful for the chapter breaks and headings and verses, but man, they cause us to miss context at times. And right here, there is an incredible lesson to see, that Jesus tries to destroy these bloated crowds, probably thousands leave, and then you read that it is these tax collectors and sinners that are drawing near to him. The crowds are gone, and these are the people that are left. And why is that? It fits perfectly, which is one of the reasons I wanted to look at those verses in Luke. When we went to Luke 5, you could have said, hey, didn't we preach on these verses? Well, I preached on them like nine years ago, probably, so it was a while ago. But the reason I want to look at those verses in Luke 5 is this. Verse 32, Jesus said, I haven't come to call the righteous. I have come to call sinners to repentance. And what do you see right here? You see sinners coming to repent. You see the others who have left, but these tax collectors are drawing near to him. They knew they were sinners, and what were they tired of? They're tired of their sin. They don't want to be spiritually sick any longer. They want to be made well. Now, even in the secular world, there's this understanding that sometimes people, or maybe oftentimes, people have to reach rock bottom before they'll do what? They'll change. There's this, sometimes we'll even say they haven't gotten low enough yet, even in the unbelieving world. And it's often the case spiritually. People have to be tired of being spiritually sick. They have to want to be made well. Now, in next week's sermon, we're going to see that not everyone, in particular the religious leaders, were not happy about this, about Jesus helping these people. And he responds to their criticisms by teaching these very endearing parables about the lost sheep, lost coin, and lost sons. And each of those parables reveals the Lord's heart for the lost or for the tax collectors and sinners of the world or the spiritually sick of the world to be made well. Now, the beautiful truth is this. If you are spiritually sick, then there is a physician that what? Wants to make you well. Jesus would not turn away tax collectors and sinners in his day, and he doesn't turn them away in our day. It's just an issue of recognizing our sickness and desiring to be made well. I will be up front after service. If you have any questions about anything I've shared or I can pray for you in any way, I'll consider it a privilege. And after the closing song, we have some new families to introduce as members, so go ahead and sit tight for that as well. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the great physician who desires to make us well spiritually, that he wasn't turning away tax collectors and sinners or those viewed as the very worst in society in his day, and he's not turning them away in our day, Lord. And how thankful can we be in our evangelism that as we point people to Christ, nobody is going to be too sinful for him. Nobody is going to have sinned in such a way that they can't be forgiven by his work on the cross. And so what a blessing to us to know that Christ's sacrifice was greater than any amount of sin that any of us could ever commit. And so help us to keep that in mind as we share with others and help us to have appropriate relationships with the unsaved that we interact with in our lives, whether at the workplace or our school or in our neighborhood. Help us to point them toward the great physician who can make them well. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.